Hello, welcome to the show. How's it going, Drew? Pretty good, Dustin. Alright, well, as kind of like a little kickback and relax type deal that I like to do, I like to crack me open a dip. I uh, Yes, I chew smokeless tobacco. I know, it's unhealthy. Save your comments. You should really quit that. I know. Drew, take over while I put this I mean, I smoke cancer c- in my mouth. <laughs> I smoke cigars, so... Yeah, but you don't inhale them. True. Because I, I, I do the gentleman's tobacco. <laughs> well, I do the cowboy tobacco. <laughs> at least we don't smoke kind the... Of a cowboy. At least we don't smoke the devil's weed. Exactly. The devil's grass. The devil's grass. <laughs> Some hushies. I wonder what that's like. <laughs> What's that like? For everyone who is wondering now if we use cannabis, we don't. Mm-mm. Although Very maybe I should. <laughs> uh. I did see a video the other day. Uh, me and my wife were in Branson this weekend. and You were at my last name? Yeah. Sweet. All right. Um, As I act like I didn't already know this information. Because <laughs> we're not friends and don't no, contact don't. each other out of the show. <laughs> we don't talk at all. <laughs> show up. You got your notes? Yeah. <laughs> no. Um. This guy, he suffers from Parkinson's disease, and he has a, he isn't very bad. And uh, it's not funny. He sits on the couch, and he's you know kind of going back and forth, like shaking. And he puts a drop of liquid cannabis underneath his tongue, and it's like a half a drop or a drop. And within I don't know, like 15 minutes, he's calming down. He's not shaking. He's just really? back to normal. And you know, for all these years that I've that I've said no. To marijuana, you know, if I had Parkinson's disease or my older relatives had Parkinson's disease, and that's what it took, you know, I could be for it medically. But yeah. as for the devil's grass and the stuff you can buy on the corner from, you know, Leroy, Leroy, like fifteen a bag, <laughs> bad, bad Leroy Brown, best <laughs> man, oh damn town. <laughs> no, um, no, not against that. But anyway, we're talking. About, what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we are talking about. Probably the biggest case we've done yet, even though this is just episode three. We are talking, Crabtree, about the Phantom Killer of Texarkana, also known as the Moonlight Murders. And I, I want to start off by saying I was like, I was very excited because I knew, like I had heard about this before, but I never like really looked into it. I would scroll through Netflix a while, like a long time ago, and it, there'd be the movie on there, and I'm like, I'm going to watch that, and I never did. <laughs> Which I watched last night, and I will be telling everyone about. Yeah, I don't have that value more information but um so far this is probably the most exciting case like i was excited i was just like you know sitting there taking notes and i had probably you know three pages of notes just you know scratched out no no matter time my my pen was flying so fast it almost burnt my notes up <laughs> i i have a book which i'd already read previously and so i went through it to find choice things that i'm going to point out in this episode, but I don't know if Dustin has noticed this, but I just went in and put a bunch of sticky notes, so it's just like full of marked That's very pages. So, I mean, we're working towards one day we're going to have one of those cases where you have to have like the yarn <laughs> thing, like the map yeah, of the wall. Even, can't even use paper. We have to just like clear out a wall. <laughs> like, <laughs> connect the dots. Um, that was actually very handy. My hand hurts from writing hurts so much. Writing. Yeah, but you know, at least... I'm glad that I lucked out and just had post-its. I had post-its <laughs> on my book, and I watched a movie. Yeah, and you got the soul-crushing. Yeah, but I will say this, and this is uh, this is not emasculating at all. I did all my notes while in a bath, 
calling a bath? Yep. Were you sipping red wine? Nope. That's what I would have done. I should have, but... Did you light some candles? No. Namaste. 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 But it's actually really handy in my bath, because my bathtub is a jacuzzi tub. So I can sit there. I can sit there. Fancy. Yeah. I I bet your tub is paid for. Oh, it's paid for. (laughs) Shout out to Tony. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh. Oh, only he'll get this joke. Yeah. For those of you who are wondering what we're talking about, sorry. Um, hey, I want to make an aside on this. We, we've we never told anyone about Tony. Mm. We've never brought him up to the show. You know what? At the end of the show today, I think we should kind of give, give a little kit on just who Tony Simmons really is. <laughs> Anthony Gerald Simmons II. Anthony the Gerald second. Simmons II. <laughs> No. His social security number is. <laughs> 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 um, we pulled from the airwaves. <laughs> but no, like I have a uh, a piece of plywood that sits in my bathroom. It's kind of like my desk in my bathtub. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I'm in there needing to do research, I did this when I was in college. I would do my homework while relaxing. Um, but that's where I do my notes. So a little bit of too much information right there. But, TMI. Yeah. But I figured I'd share that. Anyway. It is our in. podcast. It is. But you're right, country. I am my boss. Let's dive in. All right, so the Phantom Killer, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they called him the Phantom Killer, the Phantom Slayer, um, Phantom Murderer. We'll just say the Phantom. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's the normally accepted. Yeah, plausible. Small, um, like, short name for him. Yep. Authorities believed he killed... About five people in eight weeks. He attacked eight people. Um, three people, including the first two victims, survived. Uh, the third one that survived, she's become my hero over the last week. I <laughs> yeah, mean, I, I love this lady. Yeah. Um, the first attack happened February 22nd, 1946, on a back road that's, way outside of town. That's like not, it's February 7th right now. Mm-hmm. Kind of on the anniversary. Um, like 51st anniversary? Yeah. Um, I hope I mathed right. <laughs> yeah, on a just a strict guess. We're just gonna, <laughs> um, the first victim, his name was Jimmy Hollis, and his, his, his girlfriend. Possibly Mary. related to my ex-wife. Yeah, yeah. We won't go into that one. <laughs> it's not actually a joke, folks. <laughs> um, Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Larry um, were the first two Vicks. The reported... Phantom approaches her parked car and blinds them with a flashlight. He ordered Jimmy to remove his pants and then proceeded to beat him so bad that he fractured his skull. Of course, Jimmy ended up surviving. He told Mary to run. She ran towards a ditch. He said, no, I want you to run towards the road. He then chased her down, sexually assaulted her, and then let her run away again. Yeah, the sexually assault... Did you read about, like, he did it with a gun? See, now, <clears throat> like, I like to say that I'm, I can get into the gory details. Like, I, I read, I skimmed over that. Yeah, well, I don't say that to be, like, it goes into my theory later. Yeah. Um, but I don't say that to be gory. Yeah. Um, but, and I'll explain that when we get to when I we say who we thought did it yeah. and my theory about him. Yeah, um, I think both of our theories on the outcome kind of came out the same after I researched it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Um. Now, the 
reporters or the investigators, they they did, they didn't want to tie this case into the Phantom after the after the other cases after the other victims you know, were killed. They kind of ruled this one off because he let him go. I think wholeheartedly this was the Phantom. You know. Yeah. Well, um, in the book I have, which I'll go ahead and say the name. Sorry, my voice cracked. Am I thirteen years old? <laughs> um, the 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 name of the book I read. It's called The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders, The Story of a Town of Terror by James Presley, which is, uh, he is the nephew of the sheriff of the town when all this was going on. The sheriff's name was Bill Presley. I don't know how, if I'm saying that right. Presley? Yeah. Um, Excuse us if we do butcher it, but yeah. yeah. But um, <clears throat> they, they eventually did go back and interview them when they began to believe that these were connected. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They probably could have saved some time and gotten some more details yeah. had they put it together. I, I honestly think it was more of a case that they just didn't really think about it because yeah. they lived. Well, and at the time, I mean, no other murders had happened yet. This was the first thing. But like, when you tie in how the pattern goes in on the rest of the victims, I mean, this usually they all happened about like what three weeks apart yeah it was I think a couple times it was exactly three weeks yeah well this attack happened and then three weeks later the next attack happened and then if you read into it I mean everybody can make their own guesstimations um I, I believe it was tied to it um the first murder was in let's see if I have that one written down uh, I have their names if you don't know them. Yeah, I've got their names. I don't Happened have date. March 24th. So, a little bit less, a little bit more than three weeks. But, um, the victims were Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore. And I'll get into the specs on, you know, how they died. I want to just briefly list the victims' names. Um, the next one were Paul James Martin and then Betty Jo Booker. Those two were at the same time. Betty Jo Booker was 15 or 16. Uh, she was the youngest. Um, she was the youngest victim. Because mm-hmm. um, um, see, because there was Betty Jo Booker and then Paul Martin, and then um, the next ones were. Virgil and Katie Starks, yeah. which they are a very different. He changes his mo for that. Yeah, one. that one. That one's a bit different. Um, I wanna, I wanna get back in real quick. Um, Richard Griffin and Polly Ann. Polly Ann Moore were the first actual murders. Yeah. Um, along with Richard Griffin. Um, the next one was. Paul James Martin, Betty Jo Booker, and then Virgil Starks, Walter Virgin Starks, Virgil Starks, and then Katie Starks. All right, um, I'm gonna go ahead and start off, kind of getting into Richard Griffin. We've already talked about Jimmy Hollis and uh, his uh, Mary, Mary Jean Larry. I can't really pronounce her last name. I think it's like Larray. Larray, Larry. along those lines Miss Larry Um, just a little brief deal on Jimmy Hollis Um, 
He was a insurance salesman, 25 years old at the time. He was born September 25th, 1920. Uh, he was released from the hospital after the attacks on March 9th. He uh, eventually he remarried or he married, had seven children, worked for the U.S. government. Um, said that he liked to dress in Western clothing, a cowboy hat, a pistol, and a holster. Really? Uh, I guess for that time it was cool. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Well, you know, one thing I found really interesting um, and that we hadn't really brought up is the whole backdrop of this town has been affected by World War II because this is, like, when all of, like, our boys are coming back. Yeah. And actually, Jimmy <coughs> Hollis and, um, is it Mary? Yeah. Uh, they were both married to other people at the time. And, but they were both waiting on their divorce decrees. Like, they were both in the process of getting a divorce. Really? And so they felt like they... You know, they were okay to date. They were already getting divorces. Yeah. Man, he had come back from uh, service. Okay. So, yeah, like, it's just an interesting backdrop on the town um, because there's this, like, really good feelings of people who got to come home. Was that was that Jimmy Hollis or was that Richard Griffin? I was thinking Jimmy Hollis, but let me, let me consult the book. Yeah. And uh, you go ahead and talk about... I got you. What, and I'll find um, this. Jimmy Hollis, he appeared actually on the 1971 television film, They've Killed President Lincoln. Uh, he was, he played Vice President Andrew Johnson, uh, which I thought was really cool because, you know, he you know, survived all this and ended up on TV and he actually kind of made something of, of himself, you know, famous-wise. Um, he moved to Houston and worked for NASA. He had a Bachelor of a Bachelor of Arts in History, and a Master in Science. Um, he actually died in his sleep at the age of 54. He was remembered for his sense of humor, jokes, as well as his love of the outdoors, uh, camping and hunting, stuff like that. Um, he was a really genuine guy to me. I, I liked him a lot. Um, and it Mary, was Jimmy Hollis. It was? It? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I knew that Richard Griffin was in the service, but I didn't see that... Um, Jimmy Hollis was in there. I think he was. Well, I, I did read to make sure that they were the ones with the divorce stuff. Oh. I'm pretty sure he had come back. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. And I, see, I didn't. I had no clue of that. Um, the book described them as like wartime marriages. Oh, yeah. Like basically, like they got married not knowing what was going to happen. And then, like, kind of like now that reality has happened, but maybe they just didn't really yeah. get along. Yeah, I got you. I wonder if that's probably, that probably happened a lot. Yeah, I imagine, I, I get that feeling. There's, like, so many phrases in this book about, like, wartime stuff. Mm -hmm. And it has, like, all these great, like, newspaper headlines that are just, like, Attack of the Phantom. <laughs> <laughs> like, very cheesy. Yeah. But anyways, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're, you're fine. Um, Mary Jean Larry. Larry. Can you pronounce that for me one more time? I think Larray. Larray, I like that. I mean, it sounds fancy. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> um, it says that she had, like, Really bad nightmare nightmares after the attack. Moved, I would. Yeah, definitely. Um, she moved to Frederick, Oklahoma to live with her aunt. Her aunt said for the first time in Mary's life, she was extremely nervous and wouldn't go upstairs or sleep by herself. Which, I mean, after creepy stuff happens to me, I get a little freaked out. I don't necessarily want to be alone. So after going through <laughs> an attack, I can I definitely have no, no feud with that. Um, she was questioned a lot. You're the real MVP, Mary. Yeah. She was questioned a lot after the other murders took place. And like you know, we said earlier, they didn't really 
They didn't really ask them too much about what happened to him until the other murders took place because of you know, they didn't think it was they didn't, they didn't connect it to the Phantom killing until yeah. people started actually getting killed. Another thing that added to confusion when they eventually did decide that they were connected, I, th- I think um, Jimmy was insistent that it was a <clears throat> white guy. Yeah. And Mary was insistent that it was a black man. Yeah. And, and so they didn't really, they couldn't even agree on the race of the attacker. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's what I have written down here next. She said, she said that she could identify his voice anywhere and that he was also a light-skinned black man. And Hollis said he was a highly tanned white man. Now, light-skinned black man, very, very tanned white man. I can kind of see how those could be. That could very well be the same person we wouldn't know. I mean, you know, he, he's getting hit in the head. And I mean, yeah, viciously. Know, he's not really seeing too much. I, I, I can put it down as they've got the same guy. But, you know. If I, anyone heard the weird noise, that's my cat. He's been viciously attacking me. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Lorraine died of cancer in Billings, Montana in 1965. Uh, this is where we'll jump into the first murder victims. So this is Richard Griffin and Polly Moore? Yeah. Uh, Richard Griffin, born August 31st, 1916. Um, he was a carpenter and painter. He handles it. He handled his own contracting, so independent contractor. Um, Fancy. Discharged from the Seabees in November of 45. The Seabees is a branch of the Navy. Um, I guess it's kind of like the Green Berets would be like the Marines. Uh, maybe not Marines, but I had a brain fart. Um, I can't think. But anyway, he was found fully clothed on his knees between the front seats of his 41 Oldsmobile sedan. His pockets were turned inside out, and his head was resting on his crossed hands, shot once in the back of the head. Polly Ann Moore was born November 10, 1928. Friends described her as homie and didn't really go out with boys much, didn't really go out a lot much. She was also found fully clothed, sprawled face down across the back seat of Griffin's car, a gunshot wound to the back of the head. Um, a picture of her at her former home with her arm wrapped around a black and white dog was found in her purse, and it was printed on the next morning uh, newspaper. She was also wearing her class ring with the initials P-A-M inscribed on it, helping the police identify the body. Um, now, for those of you that's watched the movie and hasn't, haven't really read up on the case, this is one of the parts of the movie where the movie kind of just Hollywoods it instead of like getting it fixed with actual fact. Um, yeah, well, both this one, this murder was closer because it's the next murder <coughs> that they really go over the top on. Okay. Um, See, and I, I haven't watched the movie. I, I got it wrong. Yeah, I watched it last night um, because uh, he, they show this murder as the, uh, he like has the girl tied to the tree and then the guy is just, I think He's just like laying in the ground somewhere, and like he, sh- they showed that he shot him. Okay. Um, and then they kind of have like a chase scene where in the movie the cop shows up as the phantom's leaving to get in his car, which it's they kind of like made things dramatic. Oh yeah, okay. But they also there is like a kernel of truth. Like the cops didn't show up like as the murderer was leaving. 
in real life, but I had read somewhere in the book, like, during this murder, a dude showed up in a suspicious car and, like, asked some people to give him a ride and, like, gave him a fake name, and um, they, like, never seen him again. Okay. So, like, there's... They took elements and just kind of made them movie compatible. Okay, so, but it's the next one. That they the next have. one gets really over the top. Okay, I got you. All right, the next one is Paul James Martin and Betty Jo Booker. Um, Paul James Martin was Poor born. Poor Betty Jo Booker. Yeah. She was born, or <laughs> Paul Jones, James Martin was born May 28, 1929. Um, and these attacks took place April 14th of 46. Um, Paul was 16 years old. He's a high school junior, uh, described as a quiet kid. Um, him and Booker were best friends since kindergarten. Um, and that one was kind of interesting because I didn't really think about how Texarkana really worked, but, um, well, it's a town in two states. Yeah. And they were friends on what well, I think it was the Arkansas side. Yeah. And then she moved to the Texas side. Now, now that gets into, and I didn't think to write this down, did all of these murders, did they happen on different sides? I don't know. Do I, think I they was all, thinking they all happened in the Arkansas side. Yeah. And or maybe it was the other way around and they all happened in the Texas side. Because that comes into play later on with our suspect. Um, yeah, and I'm not... Which I can consult that when we get to that part. Yeah, I should have I wrote that part down in big bold letters because <laughs> I did I, not either so like whenever I like I when I came across all the victims like I was so into it I was just writing so fast down and this my whole notes are just so sloppy it's just like <laughs> oh where's that at this is episode three y'all <laughs> but um he was found shot to death around 6 a.m. a mile and a half from his car um it said that he picked up Betty Joe around 2 a.m. from her regular gig at the VFW. And that's where we get into Betty Jo Booker. And I have a whole page on Betty Jo Booker. Now, she was born on June 5th, 1930. So that placed her at 15 years old. She was the youngest the youngest victim. She of was the, 15, about to turn 16 mm-hmm. in a few months. Yep. Now, she was a 15-year-old high school junior, along with... Uh, Paul, but um, she was one of four officers in the high school band that she she played the Bundy E flat alto saxophone. I think it was. Yeah, she played the saxophone. I know. Yeah. That. Um, she was second in Jerry Atkins' orchestra, the rhythm, the rhythmeries. I don't. I'm probably butchering that too. I was thinking um, it was like the rhythm airs or something like that. I don't. Yeah, you're right. I, I see that know. now. Like I said, my handwriting is really sloppy, and I couldn't. I can hardly make any of this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we shouldn't tell the fans that. Maybe not. Or maybe the fan, because I don't know how many fans we're going to have at this point. Yeah, this is we're only at three episodes now. <laughs> <laughs> and we uh, haven't even released the first one yet. That's right. Um, Pre-recording. <laughs> they would play uh, proms, uh, stuff like that, etc. Um, like you said, her regular games at the VFW. Um, her and Martin were best, best friends since kindergarten on the Arkansas side before she moved to the Texas side in 1944. Um, she was very popular, had many friends, was well-liked in school, loved music, swimming, enjoyed dancing. Uh, she'd won many awards, scholastic, liter- literary, 
musical and the citywide Little Miss Texarkana in 34. So she's winning, she's been winning awards her entire life. I mean, she's very talented. Yeah, very talented. She was nearly a straight A student, planned on becoming a medical technician. Um, after her death, the Rhythmeries? Rhythmares. The Rhythmares. Yep. Probably. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> yeah, allegedly. <laughs> um, it said they never played again. Uh, reports say that her body was removed by the East Funeral the East Funeral Home. Now, um, what I thought was crazy, well, not crazy, but I thought it was good. Um, their funerals were the exact same day. One of them was at 10, the other one was at 2, directly uh-huh. before I was apart. And it was said that um, heavy rainfall, hundreds of people attended both funerals. Um, just a bunch of classmates, friends, family. I mean, all paying their respects despite the rain. I mean, I, that was really, really very nice. Um, their band leader, Jerry Atkins, was also a pallbearer at her funeral. Um, her, their friends didn't know why they were, why they ended up at the Spring Lake Park since her and Martin were just friends. But, you know, I could see they've been friends for so long. Maybe there was something there. Uh, friends say that there wasn't anything there, but I mean, I'll leave everybody else to speculate on that one. Um, I have a quote from her mother, and her mother said, "I trust the men who are handling the investigation to my into my daughter daughter's death. I'm sure they'll find whoever did it. If he is caught, I would like to kill him. If they would let me, I would kill him myself." End quote. And I personally, I've been there on the family side of a tragic death. I've seen, you know, my family members say some strong words about the killer. Um, so, I mean, I, I know where her mother is coming from on that one. Um, I'm, me personally, at the time, I was the same way. Now I've gained a greater outlook on forgiveness. Um, with that being said, you know, we'll move on to the next one. But, um, the final two victims. I I want to bring up something important about the about uh, Betty Jo, um, because she was murdered on her way leaving the show. She had her saxophone. Okay. Yeah. And the saxophone. I, just, I completely forgot about that. The saxophone became a very important piece of evidence because they knew it was there and it had a serial number. So they eventually did just find it out in the woods. But they had like an APB to all pawn shops, basically saying if you get this saxophone and it has these numbers on it, you know, basically hold them up and call us so we can come pick them up and figure out what the deal is on it. Um, and so that was a very important thing. And that's where, like in the movie, they really go over, like the over-the-top killing is that one. Because in this one, they have the girl playing the trombone and the killer ties a knife to the slide on the trombone and he like plays it, and as the slide goes out, it stabs a girl when she's tied to the tree, and yeah. so that was where they no. went. Yeah, that was they the, used a lot of artistic license with that one. Gotcha. All right. Um, the final two victims, Walter Virgil Starks. He was born April 3rd, 1909, and these two murders were carried out May 3rd of 1946. Um, they had a farm about... What was it? it was a 500 acre farm. I think it was big. I mean, it, that was that was that's pretty, pretty big. 
Um, it was about 10 miles northeast of Sexarkana. Um, he married, he married his wife, Catherine, on March 2nd, 1932. Um, she was originally Catherine, Catherine Strickland. Um, like Strickland propane? Yeah. King Shout of the Hill you, reference. Shout out to you King of the Hill fans. Um, dang it, Bobby. <laughs> um, they said that he was a good neighbor, was respected and trusted by everyone who knew him. Um, on, but on Friday, May 3rd, around 8.50 p.m., Walter was, or, I'll call, I'm going to call him Virgil. Yeah, that's what everyone refers to him as yeah. instead. And every time that me and Drew would talk about it, I would you know, I'd say Walter, but you know, I've known to call him Virgil. Um, said that he was sitting in his, I guess, easy chair, recliner. Um, he had a heating pad on his back, listening to his favorite radio program, reading the Friday, May 3rd edition of the Texarkana Gazette, when he was shot from a closed double window that faced the highway about three feet behind him. He was shot in the back of the head by two slugs and died almost instantly. His wife, <coughs> excuse me, throat's a little, throat's a little ratchet right now. Ratchet. Uh, his wife was still recovering and couldn't attend his funeral, but over 500 people showed up, 60 being his friends and family, being his, um, him and his wife's family. Now, his wife is the one who is a badass. Yeah, she's the one who we've come to just be like, all right, you know, she's she's the real MVP. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, I I admire this lady a lot. Um, Katie, her name her, her name's Catherine. They called her Katie. Um, discovered Virgil dead, and, and then she went to call the cops. She allegedly rang the phone twice. And then was shot two times in the face, one going through her right cheek beside the nose, emerging behind her left ear, the other <coughs> through her lower jaw below the lip, breaking her jaw into several pieces before lodging under her tongue. And I have this written in big letters on my notes. <laughs> she then ran to the neighbor's house who took her to the hospital. And yeah, I honestly... I was thinking, and I might not be remembering this correctly, I think she ran to someone's house and they weren't there, then ran to the next house okay. and those neighbors took now, her. Am I remembering a, that correctly or did you read that? No, I, re I, I actually did read that. Now, you have to think about this for just a second. <laughs> this is this is not, you know, Main Street town, you know, like in Halloween where she's running door to door. Yeah. You know, this is out in the country where your nearest neighbor is down the road. Yeah. Like, this is... She a, had to go down the road twice. Yeah, like, she, I mean, this is... I I would have given her an Olympic medal. I mean, like... <laughs> I want to I wanna give her a hug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just... I couldn't believe that. I, when I read it, I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, yeah. this is crazy. Now, <laughs> she lives this whole ordeal. Uh, I mean... I want to say this again. She then ran to the neighbor's house who took her to the hospital. She's been shot twice in the face. In the face. Now. There's I a mean, bullet under her tongue. Yeah. I mean, now you got to think about all the blood, teeth. I mean, they're yeah. just like coming out of it. I get revved up every time I'm thinking, every time I think about it. All right. She lived a normal life after the attacks. She eventually remarried at the age of 84 to a man named. She remarried at 84? At 84. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't realize that. Well, I might have read it before, but I don't. I didn't realize she was that much older when she yep. remarried. Uh, she was married to Forrest Sutton. Um, whenever she died, 
she was buried next to Virgil. Um, Forrest, whenever he passed, he was buried next to her. Um, she was a retired office manager at American Optical. I, I don't even American. Uh, is it supposed to be optical? That is supposed to be optical. I thought that was an H. I like I said, I can't read my own handwriting right now because I was because <laughs> he's just so hyped up. <laughs> but uh, podcast, yeah. <laughs> but she lit. She went on to live a normal life. I mean, she like I said, she got remarried at the age of eighty four. Um, her she died whenever I don't. I don't. I don't ever wrote it down. But uh, she died July third. She of died from being too awesome. Yeah, I mean that's basically like I have a tremendous amount of respect for this woman. Um, yeah, even the movie, like, didn't really sensationalize her, the stuff in the, like, I was afraid they would kind of, like, portray her as, like, this beaten, like, woman who didn't, just kind of lucked out of not dying, but, like, they even show her, as in the movie, of her, like, crawling and closing the door behind her and running and hiding from the dude and getting to a house, and yeah. I, I liked the way that they showed her in the movie. Yeah, anything less would have just been disrespectful. Um, but they're... You got some more on this because I have a couple of points I want to make about Good. the yeah, Starks. Um, one thing that is a big deal, actually, both of these facts tie into our suspect, who I think we'll be getting to yeah. here pretty in a minute. Yeah. Um, the one, the big thing that is, there was two cops, and they were driving, and they passed near, like up the road from the farm, and they saw this like suspicious car parked on the side of the road and they thought maybe we should check that out maybe we should see who's in this car who's driving this vehicle and they but they had some kind of it was like they had to have their expenses turned in by midnight and they were running late so they just they made the judgment call to like drive on turn in their expense reports and then go in come back and check out the car if it was still there now while they're at the uh, police office they hear about what happened at the Starks farm, get there, that car is gone, and they realize that that person was probably very well the Phantom, and that that was his getaway vehicle. So it shows that he had parked somewhere up the road and then walked to the house. And another thing that I also feel is important is that since this is in the 40s, not everybody has a phone, and where they lived at, the Starks house was the only house that had a phone in the area, which, if if there was a local, they said that, like, the locals would know, because a lot of the locals, like, used the phone. They yeah. shared these people's phone. Which, at the time, probably wasn't weird at all. Yeah, it would mean, you know, like, party lines and stuff. Yeah. So, like, they it, it couldn't have been a local, because they say a local probably wouldn't have chose the house that had a chance to call the police. Yeah. Um, but I just, I wanted to bring those in, because that's, I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, and, I mean, to go on somebody else's property that's, like, out in the middle of nowhere, knowing that they have a phone, knowing they're the only people that have a phone, I mean, I could play it in on, well, it's like, all right, it's like if somebody's going to go after, like, a family, and I've read many cases on where they take out the young son first, and then they start hitting everybody else, maybe this was like, I'm going to kill everybody in this, like, vicinity i'm gonna take out the people that have the phone first but you know he killed him got spooked and ran off because she got away that's just kind of a theory but i mean i like that's the first thing that came to mind was well you know maybe that was his idea but you know it's all alleged 
you know, evidence. So Our favorite word on this podcast, yeah. alleged. And I think we're going to get into... Talking about the suspect. Yeah, the suspect who... This is a strange... <laughs> yeah. The whole thing is really weird. And for the listeners out there, if you listen to this and you're like, no, I don't, I don't agree with that, okay, I get it. I mean... You have an opinion, but your opinion is wrong. <laughs> I mean, because at first, everything that I was reading was kind of leading to, okay, no, this guy didn't do it. But then I got onto some really good factual evidence that I was like, okay, yeah, Drew, you're right. This guy totally did it. Because <laughs> Drew from day one was like, no, this guy did it. I want to isolate where you were like, Drew, you're right. <laughs> and I'm just going <laughs> to listen to that all the time. <laughs> I'm just going to bring it into any argument. Oh, yeah, Crabtree? Well, what about when you said this? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, and in Dustin's defense, I had, I had read this book just out of my own leisure, like, way before we were even talking about doing a podcast. Yeah. And it was one of the ones that really, like, jettisoned my interest in true crime because this story is just so crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I don't know how you, you want me to go ahead and just kind of start well, you know, somewhere. We'll talk about – we'll just bring it up like we were a victim. All right. Um, what was his first name? I, I, I just <laughs> called him Sweeney. Yeah, it's it spelled – well, no, it's spelled, like – Y O U E L L. It's like Yule. Yeah, Yule Sweeney. I think we're saying is his first name right. I don't even know where I got Robert at, but after what I've read, Yule now. One thing I want to go ahead and put out there that we haven't really mentioned. I mean, this case was like a media shitstorm. PG thirteen language. But um, back in the forties, I mean, this wasn't something that happened really, and I mean. So, okay, the Texas Rangers showed up. We didn't even talk about Lone Wolf, no. Gonzalez. I mean... We've really just gotten into the victims and how they were, you know, off right now. Yeah. This would, be, this would probably be the best time to bring up the Rangers. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think you had a little bit, because I didn't go back and read as much about them. I like, but um, there were just all these things of, like, people would call in. Like, the a lot of the sheriffs and people said a big problem with this case was people calling in with false leads. But they weren't even, like, for the most part, they weren't misinformation to be malicious. It was just people were so freaked out. Like, you know, they talk about how, like, they literally, locksmiths were, like, so busy they couldn't keep up with demand because people wanted deadbolts and yeah. guns. Like, the gun stores were running out of guns. Yeah, I mean, because everything shut down in dark. I mean, the yeah. whole town shut down. But, like, the upside to it was people were still, you know, some businesses were still getting money. Because they were selling out of all their guns, you know, all their ammunition, dogs. stuff like that. Yep. Like all the dogs at the pounds, like you couldn't adopt a dog because yeah. they already went and got all of them. Yeah. Uh, just things like that. Um, you know, they called in the rangers and it's like this lone wolf guy. I don't remember what other, he was a, attached to other big cases. Yeah. And, it, and I started to read more into like just him in general, uh-huh. but. We went off on vacation, and I didn't do it. That's my laziness. He seems like a really interesting dude. But real quick before we kind of get into the Rangers, another thing that was kind of sending stuff into mayhem was the use and the like, young people in the town, which is I, – I think it's very respectful. I mean, I, res- I would respect somebody for doing it. I would probably be the one out here doing the same thing. But they would kind of try to bait the phantom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. into like you know coming out I mean some of them would 
you know, they would sit outside or they would go park out by like the lover's lane and with guns and kind of like wait, kind of like you're hunting the phantom. Yeah. And there was one of them that you were talking <laughs> yeah. about earlier. Well, okay, so this is great because not only were the kids doing this, cops were out trying to watch for kids parked. And so they would kind of like be like, hey, kid, get out of here. So a cop shows up. And approaches it with a flashlight. It's kind of like, get out of the car, get out of the car, you know. And they open the door, and there's a girl sitting in the front seat with a gun pointed at the door. And she's like, uh, you're lucky, mister, I almost shot you. I thought you was the Phantom, or, you know, something like that. Yeah. And there was also this weird deal of, you got kids trying to bait the Phantom. You also have cops. They would have cops. One would dress up as a woman, and the other one would, like, dress up in kind of like casual men's clothes. And they would go sit in cars and act like they were young couples trying to get the Phantom to come to him. And they had, like, stuff about it in the movie, too, like, for comedic effect. Yeah. But it really did happen. <laughs> um, so, that, I mean, there's just a lot going on. They don't really know. I mean, it's, it's in the 40s. This kind of stuff hasn't happened before, really. Or, you know, if it's... Yeah. We're not in this Internet age where information isn't so readily available. Yeah. So they were just kind of doing what they thought they should do or could do to help i mean you know and in a small town back in those times i mean people still took matters into their own hands i mean even on probably little situations not even close to big ones like this i mean i could totally see it happening i mean even now i'd like to think that if you felt the law wasn't doing enough maybe people in this, <laughs> like the small town that i come from would probably maybe do the same. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> but I thought it was really cool. Yeah. But um, I mean, basically, just the rangers were like you said something about so many rangers would be in town at all times, and they would take yeah. shifts being in town. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading. I mean, just as the case kind of died down, they would have less and less rangers, which like Lone Wolf had come out and because he was coming out and saying things to the media, and he had said like uh you know, I'm not going to leave until the Phantom is caught. Uh, our suspect, we believe this was the guy. I mean, I, in my heart, really believe this was the dude, yeah. so they did catch him. Even, like, when we first started talking about this case, I mean, just about the first words out of Drew's mouth was, Yo, Sweeney. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I And I'm, like, really excited to get to this part, if you're ready. Yeah, I'm, I'm digging in. Okay. okay. Now... So this dude is Yule Sweeney is basically just a career con man, just a kind of like a sleazy guy. Like he has like a tattoo of a heart that says revenge in the heart, huh. and just like he's like a cartoon like Popeye villain, <laughs> and he, and he's just he's like he's one of those slick guys like you would or he at least thinks he's really slick that you would see who's just like hey man how's it going he's like trying to pickpocket you or whatever yeah, really scumbag yeah and so he and i i didn't go back and read all of it because it's a few chapters um but basically he was renting a, some property and he had a wife basically he didn't pay the dude and just kind of skipped out on the bill and so that started him calling the cops to complain about him, which started, he gave him the license plate number to the car, if I remember correctly. But then they found out the car is stolen. So they're like kind of camping out to try and catch him. 
and uh, they think they know where he's at, but they're or they know where he's gonna be. So they they have a stakeout at a parking lot. He doesn't show up, but his wife shows up. Well, they arrest his wife, and then shortly after they get a call um, in the other state, which I think they got a call from him in Arkansas. Now, that's something I would like to look because it could be flip flop, yeah. but I think it was in Arkansas. So he showed up and tried to sell this car, or like trade it into a dealer, or sell it to a guy. And um, then, you know, he calls and says, hey, that stolen vehicle is up here. A guy tried to sell it to me. So um, the sheriff and some of the cops from Texarkana come up, and they wind up, like, having a chase with the dude. They have a chase with Sweeney. And when they catch him, they, like, catch him in a fire escape. And the cop has his gun, and he's like, or uh, the cop's just like, stop, stop. And so Sweeney says to the he cop. He hasn't pulled his gun, though. Yeah, I don't think he had pulled his gun. And he he tells the cop, you know, he's basically like, yeah, don't shoot me. And he's kind of, he gets a hold of him and he's just kind of like, why would I shoot you? And uh, he's like, you just wanted for car theft. And he's, or something to that effect. And Sweeney goes, you want me for a lot more than stealing cars, mister. Yeah, now this is the part where I came in. I hadn't read this particular part. Everything that I had read kind of was like, you know, they tried him, but they couldn't find any real good evidence. And everything, basically everything that I read was going against him. Not He didn't do it. And I told Drew, I was like, you know, I, I really don't think that he did it. And then Drew's like, no, keep keep. keep I have going. another piece of evidence I just remembered that I wrote down that I haven't told you that, oh, like, okay. really seals. And I'll read well, it in a minute. Well, because, like, after I read that, you know, the chase down and, you know, <laughs> what he said, you know, you've got, you, you, you're going to, you want me for way more than cars there. This man that's is a too, moron. <laughs> that's too, like, that's too shy. Now, he could have been like, okay, well, you know, I'm wanted. They're probably going to try to get me with that. Yeah. He might just be like, man, y'all are trying to get me for way more than that. People do that. Yeah. So that's not weird. But. Well, he, and he, he was, a, uh, like, a, basically a known con. Like, yeah. he'd been in jail and stuff before. So they, they wind up loading him into the car. And he starts asking the cops weird stuff. Like, he's like, hey, you think I'll get the chair? Yeah. And they're like, no, you stole cars. Yeah. Why, you know? And so then he goes, well, do you think I'll be lucky enough to get out in 25 years? And so. You just stole a car. That's all you did. You're not going to get 25 years. Yeah. And so finally he catches on that they're not pulling his leg, that like they really just think he is only guilty of stealing cars. And so he just clams up. And he gets them, you know, back to the jail and they're talking about it. And I think they, they find some suspicious stuff in the car. Like, I remember, I was telling Dustin, like, they, I'd have to go back and read to remember exactly, but they had found in his possession, like, a shirt that had a part sewed onto it that was, like, the main letters to Stark, which was, like, Virgil. And they had proof, you know, at the site of uh, their house when they were, the murder happened, they found where the dude had run off, and they found where he dropped a flashlight, and they knew that... He had basically, there was like an adjacent welding shop, and he went through the shop, and they assumed that he stole the shirt from there because he's just like a, assuming Sweeney was the Phantom, he is like a compulsive thief as well. Yeah. So, um, and they, they, and to go back to talking about Katie, she at first said, yeah, I know that that was his shirt. I know I did that. And then the police are like, we believe you. We don't think you're lying, but we just want you to know that you know, this could be evidence that could cause this man to go to death. And, like, she's such a stand-up lady that, 
even though her husband's dead and she's been shot in the face, she, she doesn't, doesn't want to get the wrong guy. She doesn't want to get the wrong guy. So she's like, well, any wife would probably have sewn stuff onto their husband's shirt so it was messed up. So I can't for sure say, like, there's not just a serial number on the shirt that I could go off of. But while Sweeney and his wife, his wife's name was Peggy, I believe. Let me, I'm going to look at that real quick. You, wanna, you got anything you want to say, Dustin? Yeah. Uh, just overall, I mean, Whenever he told me about the the shirt, I mean, it, it, if it had that line of Stark on it or Starks, even if I don't want to get the wrong guy, if he if I found that, you know, on my wife's, you know, if that was one of my wife's clothes and she had been killed, and some guy has like her name, you know, stitched onto that, I mean, I'm I'm like, okay, yeah, this is the guy. Despite I don't want to get the wrong person, I'm pretty darn sure this is the guy. But I mean, I can see where she wouldn't want to get the wrong guy. I mean, that's that's really honorable on her part. I mean, even though she's been through so much, you know, she lost her husband. She's, you know, severely shot up. I mean, she still has that decency to not want to get the wrong guy. So I, mean, I respect that even more about her. Yeah, and so while they're in jail, his wife's name is Peggy. And they, that like the cops and the, F, like the FBI show up because... Since Texarkana is two towns in different states, they have proof that Sweeney transported a stolen vehicle across state lines, which makes it a federal offense. Yeah. So the FBI show up. So, like, you have the FBI, you have the Texas Rangers, and you have the local sheriff's department kind of trying to play them against each other, like, coming in and being like, well, you know, your husband says this, or well, your wife says this. But they kept them in, like, cells apart from each other, so they couldn't pass notes. And they found a note where basically Sweeney was telling his wife, like, don't tell him anything. You know, if they're saying that I incriminated you, I, I didn't. You know, to ask the FBI to show you my written statement, it'll prove to you that I didn't turn on you. So they're already getting these weird, I mean, why Why would you need that note in the yeah. first place? So they finally get her to talk. Um, because basically she she acted like she wanted to talk. She acted like... I remember there was a part where uh, they come in and they say something about they're investigating him for murder. And Peggy goes, oh, how did they find out? And then she clams up. Like, she doesn't want to talk about it. And they're like, okay, y'all are obvious. These are like the worst of bumbling <laughs> villains. And so anyway, she finally, after getting that letter, for whatever reason, whether she felt guilty or she just wanted to make sure she doesn't get in trouble, she goes, you know what, I'm ready to talk. Well, she gives a statement. She winds up giving three statements but won't sign off on e any of them because she says that Sweeney would kill her. Um, he said something, like, there was one note that said they don't know about, like, the rings and something else. Yeah. And they, she, in one of her statements, she says that Sweeney told her once that um, he knew a woman, had dated a woman who stole some rings from him, and he killed her for it. So they're, you know, they don't know if it was like, they can't prove that he had done that. They just know that he might have been trying to scare her. Yeah. So the first two statements, she doesn't admit to being around the murder, any of the murder areas. Well, she, then in the third statement, well, in the first two statements, she tells them basically yeah, we would steal cars and just kind of go running around trying to get money in weird ways and drinking. And every, basically almost every three weeks, she puts them back in Texarkana 
And on pretty much every night that there was a murder, she's like, well, we went to my sister's and he was went out for the night and I don't know where he was. Or basically would just say, you know, I, I, I don't know where he went. Well, in the third one, which is it's a little bit long, but I have it in the book, which is basically verbatim. And if you're cool with it, Crabtree, I'd kind of like to read this. Go for it. All right. So this is Peggy Sweeney's statement. This is the third one. And this is the one where she actually says that she was at the site of a murder and witnessed at least one of them. And um, anyways, I'll, I'll just get to reading. Go ahead. The same day, shortly after 10 o'clock that night, she produced a meteor version, complete with details she had skirted around in her first two statements. Johnson always had other witnesses present when he took her statements. This time, Sheriff Davis, Tackett, and Boyd joined the session. Along with some modifications, she offered the kind of specific details she earlier had studiously avoided. It was as if she previously had wanted to divulge all, but was held back by some unseen hands, such as Sweeney's threats. Repeating her account of their arrival from Dallas and drinking beer at the two cafes the night of April 13th, she said they left the driver's cafe at closing, drove about town, and then to Spring Lake Park. He told me that he was going out to the park and robbed someone that we would find in the park. He told me that he was not going to work as long as he could get money from someone else. They drove through the park and took a road away from the lake. We had passed several cars parked along the road in the park. We passed one car, which was a coupe. Sweeney pointed the car out to me and said, The people in that car should have some money. The coupe was parked on the gravel road outside the park along the railroad track. It was a few hundred yards from the gate to the park. We drove about 200 yards past this coupe, and Sweeney stopped our car. Sweeney told me that he wanted me to go with him to rob the people. We both got out of the car and walked back toward the coupe that we had spotted. Sweeney had taken a gun from the car seat. This gun had been laying in the seat between us while we were driving toward the park. Sweeney had the gun, which he told me was an automatic in his hand, as we walked back toward the parked coupe. We walked up to the coupe, and the couple were in the car talking. We walked up on the driver's side of the car. Sweeney had the gun in his right hand, and I was standing on his left side. Sweeney told the couple to get out of the car. The boy in the car asked us what we wanted, and who are you to tell me to get out of the car? Sweeney told him to get out of the car, or he would show him who he was. The boy got out of the car on our side, and the girl got out on the side away from us, and walked around the front of the car to where I was standing. Sweeney told me to search the couple. I did not search them and told Sweeney I was not going to. Sweeney told the couple that if they did not hand over everything they had, that he would kill them. The boy had his hands up and begging Sweeney not to kill them. The little girl was begging me to make Sweeney stop and not kill them. Sweeney got mad because they would not hand over their stuff and I would not search them. The little girl and I were standing near the front of the car. Sweeney was standing several feet from the side of the car and to my right. The little boy was standing in front of Sweeney, about four to six feet. Sweeney had the gun pointed at the boy. He shot him two times, and the boy fell to the ground. The little girl and I began to scream. I told Sweeney not to kill him. Sweeney told the boy that he ought to shoot him again. The boy did not say anything that I heard after the shots were fired, and he went to the ground. After the boy fell to the ground, shot, Sweeney bent over him and went through his pockets and took his billfold and what money he had. I saw him then put the boy's billfold back into the boy's pocket after he had taken the money out of it. While this was going on, I was holding the girl and she was crying. Sweeney told Peggy to keep the girl while he got to Plymouth and returned. He backed up to the coupe and ordered the girl into the stolen car. The girl got into the front seat of our car. She got into the car and Sweeney then picked the boy up and put him into the back seat. Sweeney told me to get him into the car. I told him that I was not going to get into the car. He told me that he was going to kill me. Sweeney then told me to get in the coupe and be sure not to touch anything so that I would leave fingerprints. Sweeney had a glove on his left hand. It was a brown cotton glove. He held the door of the coupe open for me with the glove hand. Sweeney then got into the Plymouth car of ours and drove north on the gravel road toward the dairy back of the Spring Lake Park. 
It was just breaking day when Sweeney drove up beside the coop with our car headed toward town, the same way the coop was headed. Sweeney got out of our car and came to the coop and with his left hand opened the door for me to get out. He then looked into the coop and found a large black leather case in the car. He put this case into our car in the trunk. Sweeney told me that he had tried to get some from the little girl and she would not let him have it and that he killed her. I asked Sweeney what he did with the bodies and he told me that he put them where no one would find them. So we're going to go with the little... That was Booker. Yeah. Because that leather case was the saxophone. Yeah. Now, there was another thing that the sheriff, uh, the, the uncle of the guy who wrote this book, he found at this site a date book in the bushes. He didn't tell anyone he found it. No one knew it. Media didn't know it. No one else on the force knew it. He just put it in his pocket and he carried it with him everywhere he went because he was waiting to see if someone could corroborate it. And they eventually convinced her, even though she wouldn't sign it, he convinced her to go out with them to check out the area and have him show, try to get her to prove that she had seen this stuff. And so as they go and look around, she's like going in the right areas. And then she mentions yeah, he took some stuff out of the car. Sweeney took some stuff out of the car, and he um, grabbed, like, some paper or a book and chunked it over there and pointed to the bushes. And that's when the sheriff pulled that date book out and was like, I found this over there right where she told me it would be, and I have not told anyone where I found it. So there's, like, no way she could have known. Like, yeah. she was there. Yeah. And for me, that was... I mean, it's him. It has yeah, to be that's him. that's circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Now, um, some more kind of circumstantial evidence that we'll kind of go over. Um, the car that Peggy Sweeney was arrested for the night, of, I guess the one she's talking about right now, uh-huh. that was reported stole, stolen on the night of the Griffin and the Moore murders. Uh, so that would make it um, not the, that wasn't, that, the car that she was found in wasn't the car that they had stole that night. But it, it, yeah, well, they would just, like, steal cars. Like, they yeah. had stole, like, three... This was, this was a hobby, apparently. Yeah, well, I think there was, like, three cars that were stolen that, they, that Sweeney admitted to, um, which is honestly very interesting because it goes into his court case, yeah. which we'll get to that in a second. Um, when a lawyer told Peggy that her husband was being held for murder, she... Exclaimed, how, how did they find out? So, I mean, just kind of like there's some shady stuff right there. Yeah. Um, Peggy's family and Yule's brother-in-law believe Yule was a phantom now. That's not exactly circumstantial evidence, but, you know, if you've got family saying, like, yeah, he's, he did it. Yeah. yeah. Family's not going to just go ahead and rat you out like that. But they were like, no, he probably did it. Um, <laughs> this man was not a nice man. No. Um, slag was found in... In the front pocket, in the front pocket of a work shirt, slag was found, which matched samples from. That's from the start. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm guessing that's you know stuff found in like a welding shop, mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, like kind of like. I think it's from it's from the like when they have the rods. Yeah. So. Um, Yul Sweeney owned a 32 caliber Colt automatic, but had previously sold it at a crap game. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even. I wasn't even planning on getting into yeah, I mean, all those. Yeah, um, there's like, there's probably a couple of people running around with the murder weapons to like this day. I mean, um, when being accused of the murder, Sweeney remained silent. 
he didn't plead his innocence. He, didn't, he just kind of hung back, probably knowing that they couldn't actually just charge him with the murder. Yeah. Now he, well, I'm gonna get into it in a second, but yeah. And then he like, had a plan. It just backfired on him. Okay, well, you know way more about the Sweeney part of it than I do, so uh, go ahead and get into it. Um, there was a couple complications though. Drew, go ahead and get into yours, and I'll come back to the complications in a second. Um. Well, okay. So, yeah, he stole the cars in Arkansas, mm-hmm. and I think in Arkansas they didn't have the death penalty. I might not be right on that. I know Texas did, mm-hmm. but basically, they. Everyone knew this guy did it, but they knew that the evidence they had probably wasn't enough in court to get him, but they wanted to get him off the streets. Now, they have something called the Habitual Criminal Act, which is like the three strikes you're out kind of thing, and he'd had enough, like, these car thefts were going to get him that three strikes, which is going to give you an automatic 25 to life sentence, so you have to serve, you know, you have... Chances of parole. Yeah. But, uh. Um, probably have higher chances of parole than that one. Yeah. Just being petty car theft. So, they went in. Basically, they were like, kind of threatened him with, well, if we charge you with murder in Texas and you're found guilty, you're going to fry. Yeah. But if you'll admit to being guilty of car theft in Arkansas, we'll extradite you to Arkansas, let them handle you, and you'll just get the sentencing from that not knowing for sure if he understood that that was going to give him a life sentence because of the Habitual Criminal Act. Yeah. So they kind of sneakily did it, but there was nothing illegal about it. Yeah. Um, so, the, But anyways, they extradited him. Basically, I think he pleaded guilty, um, was found guilty anyways, and so then he was sentenced to that life sentence under the act. Yeah. So he they get him in prison. You know, every, everyone, like, they can't say, we caught the Phantom. But anyone close, like the police officer stuff, feel better. They feel like they caught him, yeah. and they were able to get him off the streets. Yeah. Um, now, eventually, he keeps going and like trying to get paroled. Yeah. And so they, every time it comes up, they get people to come in and basically be like, "We're pretty sure he murdered these people, but he's in here for car theft." Yeah. That's where it got kind of like a gray area legally. And as people got older and started dying off, they didn't have people who could keep coming in and like saying how terrible of a guy he was. Yeah. And so when it, it finally went to a pretty high court and they came in and the guy was like, well, you have no proof that he was a murderer. He was never tried for murder. You just have him for car theft and he has served way over the 10 year maximum. So they wind up, he gets paroled. He gets out eventually. But he does spend, I think, 25 or plus years in prison. Yeah. Um, some of the some of the drawbacks, I mean, you mentioned the gloves earlier. Um, his fingerprints did not match any of the latent prints on Booker, on the Booker Martin crime scene. Um, now, I don't know, I'm sure that they printed uh, his wife, but yeah. if they had other prints there that weren't hers or Yule's, I mean... That's kind of fishy to me. Um, see, this is kind of where, like, I read all this stuff first, like all the drawbacks of, like, why he wasn't the killer. Yeah. And that's kind of, like, this is kind of where I got all my, okay, no, he didn't do it. I do. Uh, after reading and hearing all the stuff, yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah, he did it. I believe he did it. I do want to throw this out, and that might um, actually fix that. There was problems with the media because this thing was such a big deal mm-hmm. that, like, 
a lot of these cases, as it got on, the cops got a little bit better at holding people back. Holding people back. But I think most of the cases, like, they had trouble with media. So they had a lot of things where, like, they would have fingerprints, and they'd be like, well, we have all these different fingerprints, but yeah. there was, like, 30 people handling stuff before we got them all cleared out. Oh, like, I listened to a case a while back ago on a, one of my favorite podcasts, and um, a cop had been killed, mm-hmm. and all his buddies on the force were there within no time, and they said there wasn't enough kind of evidence because his body had been tampered with by all these, like, 30 police officers. There was 30 different boot tracks all through the area. So, I mean, if you you imagine the press getting out there and walking all over the yeah. tampering with the evidence. And that happened they, in the Starks part two with random bloody footprints. Really? And this one, yeah. Wow. Um, some more kind of drawbacks. Sweeney denied being the Phantom, never made a confession. Um, Peggy Sweeney eventually recanted her confession. Um now, if you if if you're taking a deputy out to where this happened at, showing him where he threw some stuff <laughs> at, I don't care if you recant your. I mean, now yeah. legally, yeah, you can't. You know, you can't. She, when she never would sign them. Yeah. So they couldn't use them against him. Exactly. Um, what's some more? Now, this is kind of where it gets a little bit foggy on mine on my end, um, but officers. That the officer, the sheriff Presley, um, a whole bunch of you know officers. They said they worked day and night for like six months trying to validate uh, Peggy Sweeney's story of the whereabouts that night, which would have been at the murder scene. Um, they deduced that Peggy was not telling the truth, and on the night of the murder of Booker and Martin, a couple was sleeping in their car under a bridge in San Antonio. Now, yeah. Like I said, she went to the crime scene, told them exactly where she threw, where he threw the book or the papers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know why they kind of go back on that. I well, see, the thing is, and I, I think I remember reading that in in the book. Um, she would like tell them these dates, but she didn't really remember them as dates. Like she'd be like, "Well, a few weeks ago on the Monday of that week," like she could tell them things like that. Yeah. And so they did have issues where they were like, you've told us information that we're pretty sure you don't know. Like, you don't know where he was on that day. Everything but was you told, foggy. Well, yeah, it was like she would tell him a date that she thought it was. Mm-hmm. And they had cases where they were like, well, this date, they weren't out of town. And, but it was kind of like they went and kind of corroborated. Like, she was kind of foggy on what the actual, like, number, like, it was. But... They had now, some things like that happen. Now this is this is the one that when I first read it I was like, okay, he didn't do it. Now in nineteen ninety nine and in two thousand, an anonymous woman contacted the family members of the victims, apologizing for what her father had done. Now Yul Swinney never had a daughter. Yeah. So that was I when when I first read it I was like, Okay, now I, that could have been just like a sick joke, but you know, this is 54 years yeah. down the road. I mean, why would you go through the trouble of looking up the surviving family members of the victims or the, you know, well, I think um, the last one died in 93. Yeah. So, I mean, the surviving, you know, the, the family members of the surviving victims. So, 
And that's like, now that I'm reading it again, I'm just like, man. I, well, and there was a lot of that with people being like, I'm the Phantom. I want yeah. to be famous. I'm the Phantom. Yeah, so, and, you know, maybe somebody <laughs> told their daughter, you know, yeah, whatever. I well, was the Phantom Killer. I don't, I don't think so, but, you know. And then there was that guy that the cops, they mentioned it in my book that I was reading. H.B. Uh, Duty Tinson. Is that the guy who hung himself or killed himself? No. Okay, well, there was a guy who was like a college student, and he killed himself. I don't remember if he hung himself or shot himself. But he killed himself, like, in his dorm, and he left this note saying he was the Phantom. Um, and uh, Yeah, like, actually. Because the cops, like, investigated it and were basically, I mean, he was just a very sick. He had problems. I mean, he, there was no way he had done it. I don't remember how they exactly verified that he didn't, couldn't have done it. Well, but, I mean, he was, he was young. I yeah, mean, I mean, well, he was, like, a young time. dude, and I don't even think he lived in the area. No. He was, I mean, he was born... February twelfth, nineteen thirty. So I mean, he'd have been sixteen. He'd have been yeah, sixteen, right at sixteen. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, technically, maybe he could have. Yeah. But he didn't. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I really don't think so. But uh, he did leave a, I believe it. They said it was a suicide note. Um, it said the opening to my box will be found in the following few lines, in a tube of paper is found rolls on colors and it is dry and sound the head removes the tail will turn and inside is the sheet you yearn two bees mean a lot when they're together these clues should lead you to it now i mean that was kind of that was the note that he well, left i think it like actually led them to find another note you know and now we might be talking we might be talking heavily about the different guy. Different yeah, guy. that's Cause a this, possibility. Yeah, because this guy, he kind of he did the old rat poisoning trick to off himself. Oh, really? Yeah. So we're talking about a completely different guy. Well, and I mean, I don't nah, remember how yeah, the other guy yeah. killed himself. Oh, okay. I can look. I mean, if, I mean, I could go through the book. We're getting kind of far along on time. Like, but like, I mean, basically, what it all ties back to is I, I don't think this guy did it, and I don't think the guy that you know, if if we're talking about the same guy, I don't. We don't think that he did it. Everything kind of points to Sweeney, but I mean, it's just there is. I mean, there's some doubts. Yeah. I'll give you that, but my stance is Sweeney did it. Yeah, and they just they, to me, there's just no. I mean, I'll hear other theories. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we're all about. But it's I just I I just believe he did it. Now I'm gonna go with the whole. I've got two theories on this whole thing, and mm -hmm. I, if if both of them, if one of them came true. Excuse me. One of them came true. I wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, I'm so shocked. I mean, if Sweeney did it, all right. You know, I, I could very well see he was shady. You know, the whole, you know, his wife knowing where the book was, and you know, the officer didn't tell anybody where he found it at. I mean, that makes sense. Now, with the lady calling, you know, 54 years later, saying, "I'm sorry for what my father done." Maybe you had a son. Maybe maybe you had a daughter. We don't know. I don't. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> what what you couldn't see on the other side of podcast land is me jump up and put my finger in the air. Um, and the reason I wanted to like actually say about that first attack that he assaulted the girl with the gun. They, I mean, they have a theory. <laughs> you know what? Let's just address what I think might have been an issue nope. in our last episode. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. We had talked about, and I don't remember the wording, but I said something about we, 
I want to say that we you know we didn't have anything well, against the gay community. Get into what you're talking about first on okay the situation. Well, the theory I just wanted to because this could be a yeah. bit touchy, but at the time there was a theory that like because they want to know why he did it. I mean, honestly, I believe that he was just he wanted to rob people and he was crazy. But a lot of like serial murder is sexually charged, like driven, and so with him. He never raped. They couldn't prove that he ever raped any of these women. Yeah. Now he did that with the gun. They know that. But like, there's a weird thing about his wife had an STD and he didn't. So it like kind of showed that at least for a little while they hadn't been having sex. Yeah. And like in prison, there's records of like he as he got older, he was writing to the senator like wanting pardon. He was saying quote-unquote, he was afraid that the young guys in here would overpower him and turn him into an oral queer. <laughs> and that's actual quote from the book. Mm-hmm. And he had gotten some, like, time added to his sentence because they found him and another guy doing stuff. They don't know if... I don't remember if it was deemed, like, consensual or if it was, like, a forceful thing. Yeah. And, like, later on in his life, when he did get out of prison, he didn't... Like, it wasn't like he really turned himself around. Like, he got in trouble. He went back to jail because he, like, had this, like, boy henchman who he'd been, I think, molesting. And he went to jail for that. And so they had this weird theory about he was, like, had this weird sense. Like, he didn't know his how to express his sexuality, and he'd get really frustrated. And so it was I mean, almost... And you, and you find that a lot with, you know, these serial killers or, you know, these, you know, psychotic maniac killers. Yeah, um, you find that kind of mo a lot. I mean, it's basically all like, oh well, I don't know how to express my sexual my sexuality, so I'm gonna go kill a bunch of people. Yeah, you know, and, and and so that's that's kind of the running theory with that is because he was possibly gay or homosexual, he couldn't really figure out how to express it, and he was so frustrated that like he did this, and for a, that little bit of time, it was a release of some kind for him. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I just said that because his, you know, he talked about the possibility of him having a kid. I don't think he, yeah. And so, and that kind of ties back on, well, maybe it wasn't him, but, you know, everybody's, uh, everybody's got their own opinion. I just so. think the lady was crazy. <laughs> called. Yeah. Um, that was rude, lady. <laughs> now, we, I did say earlier that he had a 32 caliber pistol, and she said that he used that in one of the attacks. Now, the caliber that was used in the Starks was a twenty-two. Um, so he, this guy's changed his mo. If it if it if it was the same, you know, if it was the same guy on both times, I mean, he let his first two people go, and then he killed the rest of them, and, or tried and tried to kill Katie. So I mean, you know, if he did everything, he's changed the caliber of his gun. He's let people go. So you could kind of go with sloppy. And I think yeah. Yule Sweeney was very sloppy in general <laughs> as a criminal, just as a his, person, <laughs> as his petty car theft, you know, went on. So you can kind of see the sloppiness and you can point to how sloppy that Sweeney was. So, you know, I mean, we're going to go with that. Uh, one thing that the movie and the, I guess the media could have kind of played into more was, you know, Hollis and 
Larry, Larry, Mary Jean, Larry, Mary Jane. Yeah, they they were the only ones who got away seeing yeah. him, and so they're the only two that can confirm that he wore a mask. Now, um, Katie Starks, she claimed that she never seen him. Mm-hmm. Now. You got shot twice in the face. I can understand you didn't. You might not have seen him because <laughs> uh, if I got shot twice in the face and I'm still able to run, I'm running. Whatever Katie says is the truth. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've got so much respect for her. That woman is a saint. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, when you watch the movie or you read into it, you know, maybe he was wearing a mask. Maybe he wasn't. So that's just something that you can think about. Um, the uh, the urban legend of two. Kids sitting, you know, out in the middle, you know, out, out at know, Lover's Lane, at Lover's Lane or whatever, and they hear reports on the radio of a, a killer, and then they turn around and the killer's already there. That was believed to be based off of this, you know, kind of off this killing spree. So, Too real. Yeah. So I mean, a, a lot of a lot of things have kind of generated out of this. Um, it's a very interesting case to look up, you know, more information on. I plan on, you know, personally watching the movie. Um, I will loan it to you tonight if you would like. Sweet, I'm about to go to work, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I will watch it someday. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it, it's very, very interesting. The book, I mean, I'm sure probably isn't for like 15 bucks. Um, it's a good book. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon, and it's it's honestly a very interesting read. Yeah. Uh, just especially if you really want to learn about. Kind of how the like the history of the town itself. We yeah. didn't really get into that, but it's it's honestly a really cool. It's a weird town, yeah, in a in a good way, yeah. kind of. <laughs> but um, I think what we got up next is the next. Yeah. We gotta do yeah. the next hat trick. Gotta add the next hat. So we'll be back in one second All right. to do the hat trick. All right, we're back, and it is my turn yes. to pick out of the hat. So we're gonna shuffle this thing up. Get us a good one, Dustin. Alright. <laughs> sound effects by Crabtree. <laughs> Never mess with the man who makes his own sound effects. <laughs> Alright, we got. I'm, I don't know, for some reason I'm like really nervous. Really nervous? Weird. I mean, I hope that all of ours are quality. Alright. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. Summer Hill Road. I'm excited for that one. Me too. That one was actually, I actually, to be completely honest with you, I just now heard about it. Yeah. Because Drew was like, let's do Summer Hill Road. I'm like, all right, explain it to me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it got put in the hat like a few minutes ago. And now we're going to do that one. That's actually pretty cool. And also, I mean, I'd like to remember at the end of the episode, we'll have something tacked on so you can get our email address, but send us feedback, send us, yep. you know, um, I, I keep wanting to say advice. It's not advice. We don't need your advice. <laughs> Shut we're, up, Ma. We're our own bosses. Yeah, we're our own bosses. No, uh, um, suggestions. Any kind of feedback, suggestions that you want to put in, if you know more about it than we do. I mean, I'm... <laughs> if we completely butchered a story. Yeah, I mean, like, I would rather redo an episode than lose fans. So, <laughs> yeah. send us some shout-outs, send us some feedback. I mean, you know, if we can get our Facebook status up you know yeah we'll have a facebook you know you can get on the facebook and yeah and me me and drew will be getting together 
you know, sometime, hopefully by the end of this month and setting everything up, getting together, you know, like maybe some intro music, um, you know, a cover, yeah. uh, cover photo, stuff like that. And we'll be getting stuff legitly laid out there. Yeah. By um, the time you hear this, you can actually, yes. everything will be done yeah. because we're doing the pre-recording. Yeah. We're sitting back here thinking that, oh, well, this is going to be released tomorrow. No, yeah. this is not going to be released tomorrow. Yeah. We're still I'm, doing it as a season. <laughs> Um, so with that being said, we've got our next topic picked out now for all of y'all who uh, are excited <laughs> about hearing about Mr. Tony Simmons. Who is Tony Simmons? Who is, is that Tony what you're Simmons? thinking? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Take it away, Drew. Well, Tony Simmons, Anthony Gerald Simmons, the second. Exactly. He's a second. Or junior, whatever it is. When he wants to be fancy, he calls himself the second. <laughs> that has been... One of our best friends for a long time. A very long time. Was a he was a he's a great basketball player. Yep. Played in college. For was a year. was yeah. <laughs> yeah back in the day. Um, but no, he's. I mean, we're gonna talk a lot of shit on him yep. <laughs> um, now because he talks a lot of crap about our. All right, now let's point this out. Now, if if you're like if you were gonna come hang out with me, Drew, and Tony, and you've never <laughs> met any of us before, you're gonna be in for a thrill ride of your life. Because now, like my wife, she's known Tony for a long time. She's known us for a long time, and she's like, every time that y'all get together, it's just like an ultimate talk shit fest. <laughs> and that's just basically what it is. I mean, we just brag on each other all the time, and it's fun. And but we love each other. Yeah. Now I, I want to say, <laughs> originally. Okay, because I really got into podcasts just listening to them. Yeah. And I, I had the idea in my head of three hosts. I didn't even know what the topic would be, but I knew I wanted me, Dustin, and Tony. Now, <laughs> I the day right. I... <laughs> Hold on. Now, Tony is our best friend, but he is one of the biggest naysayers, haters, whatever. He is the biggest hater yeah. around. Tell him your hopes both and dreams in, and he'll kill all of both them. In, <laughs> both in size and unliterally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, no, he's... <laughs> anyways. I love so, him, <laughs> Yeah. So I had asked... I saw him first the day I had the idea, so I asked him about it. And he, at the time, just being a good friend, politely was like, no, I don't really think it'd be my deal, you know. <laughs> and so then I got to talking to Dustin eventually, and he got to listen to podcasts, and we were just like, man, let's do it. Let's, let's make one. Yeah. Now, I had reapproached Tony after I had Dustin on board, and at this point, since he'd already politely told me once, he knew he could just <laughs> rag on it. Yeah. So he is really, you know, he, he gives us a hard time about it. And after we recorded the first one and we showed up at his house, he, I think there was a, like a twinge. Of he didn't think we would even go through with making one. But after we did it, he was like, "Oh, I want to do that." Yeah, he was like, <laughs> "You know what would make your podcast better?" And we were like, "What?" He's like, "If I was in it." So we're we're working on him to at least maybe be a guest one day. Yep. Um, so if you hear, so now if <laughs> here's my idea, Dustin. All right. Let's get our fans <laughs> to start hashtag We Want Tony. Oh, okay. <laughs> so so, <laughs> so get get on what all our social medias. <laughs> and just tell fill us it, if just, you want Tony. Just fill it up with the hashtag we want Tony <laughs> hashtag Simmons. Hashtag we want Tony Simmons. <laughs> and, and maybe if we show him that he has people wanting him on the show, then maybe we can at least get him to guest on and see. Yeah. Now, every everyone that he's on will be 
That's going to be Patrick more. Patrick Podcast, <laughs> the episode title featuring Tony featuring, Simmons. Yeah. Because he is not a Patrick Podcast man. Yeah, we told him he got, <laughs> he lost his chance to have T. Sims in the name <laughs> of the podcast. So he's he has to be featured. He's not a full-time member. Now, obviously we have Dustin D. Crab Crabtree. <laughs> we have Drew D. Brand Branson and Tony T. Sims Simmons. <laughs> yeah. We've so, had these names since. Since high school. Yeah, we've been there for a long time. Just little fun <laughs> nicknames. Um, you want to do just like a little bit of, a little bit more of like a back story on what, to, like who Tony Simmons is and <laughs> how we. I, I how honestly, we, I think that we need to get the man in on himself. Yeah. But well, actually, no, because right, if we get him in on himself, we it's might just going to be a big. I'm awesome. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. It'll be lies. Um, I, I became friends with Tony when he hit me in the face with a basketball Such in sixth nice grade. <laughs> yeah, it was an accident. And um, and the next day, because at the time I was wearing glasses, and the next day when I see him, I was like, hey, Tony, look. And I had these big bruises on my nose from the nose pads of my glasses hitting my face from the <laughs> basketball. And we've been best friends ever since that day. <laughs> he felt so bad. <laughs> that's no. probably why he's my friend to this day. He's like... <laughs> Trying to find a way to break off the friendship. <laughs> He's like, man, I feel bad. But, but he feels bad every time he thinks about hitting me in the face of the He's basketball. He's a real softie. Yeah. Um, I became friends. What, how did I become friends with Tony Simmons? I don't you know. What, <laughs> I think it was just one day I was just like, okay, we're friends. We yeah. <laughs> I hate you, but okay, we'll hang out. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, <laughs> He's not really even his friend. <laughs> nope, we just kind of know it. No. Um, I like how the end I, of the podcast. We've been talking about murder and possible, you know, just all these things, and now we're pinning Tony at the end of the show. <laughs> he was alive in 1946. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, Yule Sweeney was not the Phantom Killer. It was Tony Simmons. <laughs> Unquote. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> um, let's see. I've known him ever since he came to Wilson. We knew each other. We never really had a problem. Um, we, we were always like we were all, we were always civil, but we were never like just like besties. He was two grades ahead of me with Drew. Um, my freshman year when I started playing basketball, that was just uh, we just developed a friendship, and then you know we've been best friends to this day. Um, him, Drew, and a couple other buddies that I have, you know, still now to this day, I talk to you all the time, and you know, we've just developed a good bond from high school and we've just remained ever since but tony simmons is a bitch ass <laughs> <laughs> pg-13 podcast <laughs> uh we love you though buddy yeah we want you on the show and we're hoping that if at this point we have fans <laughs> and if you listen this far into this almost hour and a half of a podcast <laughs> that uh that y'all want him on the show and that you'll start up hashtag we want tony yep. so just right now, everything's already set up for you. It's ready to go. Go to the Hat Trick Podcast on Facebook. Yeah. If you're not already a member, hit the follow button or however Facebook. Yeah, set it'll up. be um probably do it as a Facebook group. I think it's how my favorite murder started. They have a group so that you can join okay. and add stuff. That's cool. Um, I like that. You can have a fan page where they can just like it and see your stuff and not really contribute. Okay. I well, think, I'd really get the fans involved. Yeah, I think that would be a lot well, handier. Then, if you're not already a member, join and then hashtag we want Tony. Hashtag we want Tony. We want Tony Simmons. All right, Tony. Fans, I think it's been a successful one. We'll yep. be back next week with the Summer Hill Road Murders. All right, catch you later.
Hey everybody, this is D-Brain. I just want to say thank you again for listening to the podcast. This was episode 3, The Phantom Murders. And just as a reminder, you can find us on... Ignore the dogs in the background. Um, you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can join our Facebook group um, on Facebook at The Hat Trick Podcast Group. That's our page, and you can just send us a request, and either me or Dustin will accept you on. And you can also reach out to us via our email, which is dbrainanddcrab at gmail.com. Um, I've spilled it out in the last few outros of episodes, uh, so I feel like you'll probably have already heard those by now if you want to catch us on our email. But um, with that being said, we are excited for you to come back and let's do us next week with the Summerhill Road Murders. Goodbye. <laughs>